Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. Y'all good? So, man, this morning, um, I want to open up by introducing or maybe reintroducing y'all to this YouTube video that, that somebody shared with me one day. The context and why he shared it with me was because him and his wife were not seeing eye to eye. They're a young married couple in their early 20s. And um, he was like, man, I be trying to tell her, bro, like she don't be seeing things the way I see things. And I'm like, let me guess, you can't read her mind. He's like, yeah, dog, and I be telling her the most obvious things, bro. And she like don't even see it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, that's crazy, ain't it? He like, yeah, what do I do? And I'm like, you love her, you hear her out, you try to find language that she can understand. Like y'all are talking at each other, not with each other. And he was like, man, bro, how you know that? And I'm like, cause dude, I be doing that every day to my wife too, man. I'm 15 years in the game and I'm like, homie, we still struggle with that stuff, right? Cause it's the way we wired. But I remember this YouTube video this bro showed me. He was like, look, man, I just feel like, just watch this YouTube clip. And tell me what you think. And I'm like, all right, bro. So I, he put on this YouTube clip. And y'all ever seen a joint where the lady has a nail sticking out of her forehead? So this is YouTube. Don't do it right now. But when we all go on break, you can look it up, right? So, like, she got this nail in her forehead sticking out like this. And she talking to her husband. I, I'm assuming it's her husband. Talking to her man, right? And, and he's all like, babe, you got this, this nail. No, it's not about the nail. And he's like, oh, hey, Ma, like, fall back, chill, I'm just trying to help you out. And she's like, it's just, I got these, these, these headaches, and they're right here. And he's like, yo, but for real, like, there's a nail right there sticking out your head, girl. And she's like, it's not about the nail, okay? She's like, and I, I put sweaters on, and they snag and jerk my neck, and I just, I don't know what's going on. He's like... Yo, you got this nail. It's not about the nail. He's like, all right, it's not about the nail. It's not about the nail. And he's like, bro, he's looking at me with all hope in his eyes like I'm going to tell him something. This is going to lighten his soul, right? And he's like, man, what do you think? And I'm like, hey, bro, it's about the nail, but it really ain't about the nail. And he's like, yeah, but what does that mean? And I'm like, I don't know, homie. Like, I, I ain't got the answer for that. If I did, I would have wrote it in a book and put it in a book and sold it, right? And we all would have came up. But I'm like, nah. That ain't what happens. And so as we talk about sin, here's what I don't want you to assume. That this is a launch pad to some scavenger hunt to look through every nook and cranny of your story to say, where is the sin? Where is the sin? God is like, yo, it's right here. It's obvious. When we talk about sin, it's the obvious disobedience to the obvious commands that God has given in his scripture. One perfect example is the speed limit, all right? I don't know how your relationship with the speed limit is on the freeways of the American highway system, but I ain't got a good relationship with it, especially when somebody want to drive 32.5 miles an hour in front of me. When I know that I got somewhere to go, and when I got somewhere to go, I see the speed limit posted at 65. But my speedometer is clearly articulating 85 miles an hour. And I know there's a tension 
And it's obvious that if I get rip, rip, I'm like, okay, look, I know what's going to go down. I'm going to beat the police to the punch by saying, homie, I ain't got no drugs. I ain't got no guns. My wallet is right there. I just got to grab this thing right quick. I ain't reaching for nothing. But I know why you pulled me over. I'm going 20 over the speed limit. Like, let's just, let's just kill the ambiguity. It's obvious. Stated 65, that's the law. But I have a metal foot, and I'm pushing my accelerator down because I was supposed to be somewhere 10 minutes after I left my house. So, with that being said, write the ticket, G. I got no warrants. Plates is clean. I ain't riding dirty. You can call State Farm. They know me. I'm good. I just want to get this ticket so I can get to my destination so I can say, hey, I got pulled over. That's why I'm late, right? So, like, I'm already working this out in my mind. But it's the obvious. When he pulls me over, it's like, you know why I pulled you over? If I sit there like, man, I don't even know, man, what's really good, man? Why are you coming to me like that, man? Like, for real, you profiling me? Like, no. Bro, you was breaking the speed limit. And you know you was breaking the speed limit. So when we approach the conversation of sin, and God is whoop, whoop, pulling us over right quick to have a conversation with us, I'm just saying, don't be on some, hey, man, I ain't never done nothing wrong in my life. For real. Like the folk that roll with you here are going to be like, nah, nah, homie, you have. Shorty, you have. Like you disrespected me this morning, right? Like all this stuff. So I want to make sure that we frame the conversation with that, I, I, that understanding because sin is a weighty topic. It should be a weighty topic because sin separates us. It severs the relationship that we have with our holy and righteous creator. The God who created every single one of us has wired us in such a way that he made the human race distinct from every other kind of creation. We alone bear the image of our creator. So to be an image bearer of God does not mean you want some Greek mythology, half God, half man, centaur type thing, right? Nah, that ain't what it means. To be made in the image of God and in his likeness, as we read in the, in the language of Genesis 1, means that God has shared with us on a snapshot level characteristics that he possesses on an infinite level so that we can have a relationship with him. So God has given every human being the ability to have our own personalities. He has given us the ability to have rationality. That we can hear content and process it. That we can develop language and communicate our feelings, our emotions that he's given us. In addition to that, he's given us spirituality, which is a soul that will live on after we die. But he's also given us morality, which means innately we know right and wrong. Like even when my kids was growing up and they told a lie, like they would shrink back and fall back. They would lose the bass in their voice. As soon as they knew they was lying, and I didn't have to pull them out there like, oh, for real, you're going to run with that lie? Like they knew that it was wrong. We know when we are wrong because God has given us the ability to know right from wrong. But here's where it gets twisted. When you live in an environment and you are moving about throughout a society that says, hey, real talk, there is no right and wrong. It's all subjective then this objective barometer that God has given us to gauge morality, we start neglecting that and then going for the external, not following the recipe, rhythm of the culture that says, hey, what's right for you is what's right for you, and what's wrong for you is what's wrong for you. Like, as long as you low-key don't hurt anybody, you straight. Do you. 
But as we think about that, that's the core tenet of Satanism. The core tenet of Satanism is do what thou wilt, that shall be the whole of the law. And we've heard this remixed and remastered throughout modern society and Western society over the past 50 to 60 years. And now it just translates to do you and I'm going to do me. And we totally neglect this framework of transcendent truth that God says, this is how I call righteous and unrighteousness. See, the crazy thing about the commands of God is just because he states them does not mean that we're automatically going to follow them. Just when the states of California passed the legislation to change speed limits, that did not mean that the 10 million people that live in my county with me was like, oh, bet, we're going we to drive 65, real talk, that's us, man. We're going to drive 65 from here on out. Heck nah. We was like, oh, y'all raised it from 55 to 65? Bet, then I'm going from 75 to 85. See, it's subjective. But the law is objective. And then we can even get to the other side of things is that when we are following God, then we can become legalistic. And now we take our subjective interpretation of the objective and impose it on other people. And now we think that we are the watchdogs sent by God to look over their lives while we neglect our own brokenness and sinful addictions in our own life. And we ride on people. We want them to feel our wrath. And we see that throughout Scripture. So because sin separates us from a holy and righteous God, the only way we can be reconciled, brought back into a right relationship with God, is if we do three things. Number one, we confess our sin. We deal with it. We get it out there. Number two, in confessing our sins to God, he is going to confront our guilt with the gospel. And then that will allow us to give compassion to the godless. One of the reputations that comes with being branded as a Christian is judgmental, narrow-minded, bigoted, racist. Like, I tell people all the time, because when they, are you a Christian, bro? Like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm devoted to Jesus. So you voted for Donald Trump. Where'd you get that logic from? No, I'm serious, man. People walk up on me like, hey, man, there's a person of color, man. Why are you claiming Jesus? And does that mean that you are devoted to Donald Trump? I'm like, yo, man, stop listening to CNN, dog. Don't let, don't let MSNBC shape your theology, G, or Fox News. I'm like, the reality of being a Jesus follower transcends the highly politicized reality of American climate right now. I'm a Jesus follower, which means I'm a kingdom citizen. The Constitution does not shape the rhythm of my life. The scriptures do. I don't bow to Donald Trump. I bow to Jesus Christ. So I'm living out the ethics of my Savior, and guess what? I'm going to offend the liberal left, and I'm going to offend the radical right. Because when I follow Jesus, he is not compartmentalized to the DNC or the GOP. He transcends both. And here's the other thing that we have to hear, especially with this brand of American Christianity, is that we are no more Christian than any other civilization on this planet, the reality 
of the faith that we profess in Jesus is a global reality, which means my brothers and sisters in the majority world, in Africa, Latin and South America, and in Asia, they are equally indwelled with the Holy Spirit as am I in America, but they arguably are probably walking more in harmony with the Word of God because they don't have to deal with the distractions and the comforts and the foolishness of the culture that we have to engage with that distracts us from loving our God, that leads us into coping mechanisms which then become sinful addictions. For them, they don't have access to the Word of God like we do on our phones or in our Bibles. They praise God when an airplane is landing on a strip in the middle of the, the forest in the Amazon and it has one box of Bibles in their language. They are running and praising God, walking miles and miles just to hear the word read while we don't even open up the app on our phone to engage in the word of God. So as we think about these things, when I talk about confession, when I talk about brokenness, we must unlearn American Christianity and go back to following the ways of Jesus. And that means we have to surrender our comfort. We have to surrender the God of self. And for Americans, we don't want to hear that. Because we are trying to find a way that it can be Jesus and Hennessy. We try to find a way that it can be Jesus and my porn addiction and my promiscuity, Jesus and my pill popping, Jesus and my coping mechanisms. Jesus takes the back seat while I'm in the driver's seat. Hey, at least he's in the car. Especially for our generation. So I want to use David as a model this morning. In Psalm 51, we read that joint. The first thing we see is about confessing our sin to God. Now, David opens up by writing before even in verse 1, he says to the choir master. Here's what's amazing about this, to the choir master. To the choir master meant that this was not some private letter. This was not some confidential email that David was writing. This brother was saying, give this to the national choir director because the whole nation's got to know about my sin. They got to know what I did. They got to know that God is compassionate and merciful. So he's saying, what I did in private now must be exposed to the public. So when he says to the choir master, he's talking about put this out there, make this thing go viral, let it trend. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now here's the story of what, what, what went on before this. The homie David was king. He came after this cat named Saul that God had chosen to be the king of his people Israel. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations, and they said, we want a king just like they got a king. And God is like, wow, y'all just going to reject a brother like that? All right, cool, let me give you what you want. So y'all want a king? Here's a king. Saul was the king. David was anointed because Saul wasn't walking in righteousness. Saul got a little jealous, tried to murk David. David was like, bro, I could have killed you, but I just fell back on the humble and let you live, homie. So don't come after me like that. Saul eventually ended up dying. David took the throne. This is the same little kid we talked about, David and Goliath. Maybe you heard that story. David is a little shepherd boy. Well, now he's the king. He's the king leading many, many military conquests, victory after victory after victory, walking in righteousness with God. He's a covenant keeper. Not perfect, but he's admitting his sins and he's taking the sacrifices that the law mandates that make the proper 
atonement for his sins. We're going to come back to that word atonement. So David is walking in righteousness. Then all of a sudden, David's a little older now, okay? He's a little up there. And the boys is kind of like, hey, like real talk, he, he can't swing that sword like he used to, man. Like the brother need to kind of chill. So they roll up on David talking about, hey, king, listen, we finna go to war, but what we want to do is we want you to chill. Like you the light of Israel, homie. Somebody takes you out, we all in darkness. So look, we want to protect the light of Israel. So why don't you just chill, stay in the palace. We'll send you letters from the front line. Like, man, we got this, bro. And I'm sure arguably David was like, dang, do I still got it? Like, I ain't that dude out there in them streets no more going to war. Like, man, the young homies are telling me to fall back. But I'm trying to be active. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. So I wrestled and I played baseball since the age of five, right? I'm 38 right now. And I still be thinking because we play in the softball league in Long Beach. And I still be thinking like, oh, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to show these cats, man, I'm still 17 years old. So I go out there, I give it my all, man, and I wake up the next day ready to just die. Like muscles that I forgot I had and hurting. Like all this right here that wasn't there when I was 17. Like it's covering up my, my eight pack that I used to have. And now I got like a little keg right here. So like all that is like right here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I ain't 16 no more. Like I remember it in that moment, right? So David is probably like that. Oh my gosh, I ain't 16 no more. Do, do I even still got it? Do I have it? He's walking outside and all of a sudden he sees Shorty taking a bath. He's like, oh snap. Okay, okay, I see. I see what you're working with, Ma. All of a sudden now, he tell the homies, hey, go get old girl, Bathsheba. Bathsheba rose up. I mean, it's the king. And, hey, let's just be honest. David smashed, all right? David smashed. And what happened was is that she got pregnant. She sent a letter to the king. Hey, I'm late. He lost some. Oh, snap, it ain't mine, right? <laughs> but here's what happened. See, she married, though. She married. And her husband, guess where he at? On the front line fighting in the war. So David's like, oh, snap, man, it is mine. Okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. He gets the homies. He says, hey, go get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, right? Go get him. Tell him he's doing a great job. Tell him the king has recognized his service. Hey, tell him to come back home to the crib, two weeks of R&R. And he's like, y'all got it? They're like, yeah, cool. So they go tell Uriah, hey, king wants you to just fall back, take a little R&R, rest and relaxation, go home, be with your wife, bruh, and then come back to the front line. So David's thinking, it's the only way I can cover it up. He goes, comes home, everybody going to know what they do is marry folk, she going to have a baby, boom, I'm off the hook, right? Cover-up story, straight Maury Povich style. So like all of a sudden, Uriah's like, nah, king, I can't even ride like that. I'm fighting on behalf of Israel, but I'm also fighting on behalf of the Lord, the only true and living God. I ain't going to leave the front line. David's on some, hey, come on, bro, like, just come home, be with your wife, homie. Like, you good, bro, you good. God love me, you married, man. Like, it's all good in the eyes of God, homie. Just come through, come through. Uriah, like, ain't going to do it, man. I'm going to stay here and fight. Now David, like, dang. So then he goes to the homies, and rather than confessing the obvious nail in his forehead, David says, hey, look, man, <sighs> send Uriah to lead this attack. And when y'all get to the front line, fall back and let that boy get killed. And they like, what? I'm the king. You the king. So they go tell him, Uriah, king wants you to roll up there, lead the attack. So that boy on some brave heart, ah, right, everybody running with him. All of a sudden, they fall back. That boy like, hey, hey, shh, take it all, right, boom, dead. All of a sudden, Bathsheba gets word, your husband dead. And David slide in, hey, Shorty, why don't you come live at the crib with me right quick, man. I'm going to take care of you and the baby and da-da-da, right? That's what happened. David covered it up. 
all of a sudden God sent the prophet, the voice that God raised up in the nation to remind the people of God about the word of God, the covenant of God, what it means to obey God. Walks up to David and says, King, how you living? David's like, man, I'm good, homie. What's really good with it? I'm, now, this ain't how the Hebrew render it, so I'm just trying to give y'all how I interpret this thing, right? And so Nathan's like, hey, God gave me a word. David's like, oh, all right, man of God, let's go. Give me the word. I want that fresh word. What, what, what is, what's the word? Nathan said, so there's two dudes, right? David's like, two dudes. One boy balling out of control, making it rain everywhere he go. Okay, one balling. The other one, very, very poor. Okay, okay. The poor one has one little female lamb, a little you. He done raised her. She's like a daughter to him. The rich man has all kinds of flocks and herds, has a homie from out of town coming in. And rather than, in our custom, taking a fattened lamb and preparing a meal and a banquet from his own flock, he finds the one lamb that the poor man has, snatches it, kills it, and prepares it for his out-of-town guests. David hears this, jumps up and says, what? Hey, that fool got to die. He don't deserve to live, and he need to pay back fourfold of what he took before we kill him. And Nathan says, okay, you are that man. And David says, whoa, whoa. And then Nathan says, you impregnated Bathsheba, you had Uriah killed, you are that man. And in that moment, David didn't run, David didn't dip, he didn't pass the buck. He said, I have sinned against God. He confessed his sin. See, man, we have consequences for our sinful choices. When we go to God and we confess our sins, he forgives us. But what I don't want you to get twisted in your thinking, because this is where so many people get disappointed with God, and it mutates into anger, which mutates into bitterness, which mutates into unconfessed sin, is that we think that the consequences mysteriously, magically go away for our sinful choices just because God forgives us. And that's not true, y'all. There are consequences for our sinful actions. We are forgiven. Let me give you the perfect example in my own life. I was dropping my daughter off at school when she was in fifth grade. She a freshman now. So this was a few years ago. And we pull up to the, to the spot. And she's about to get out the car. And she hits me with this question out of nowhere. She says, Daddy, were you a virgin when you married Mom? And I'm like, Ert? Like, what? I'm like, I got sleep in my eye, half a cup of coffee, I got the shakes. I'm like, girl, what? She's like, was you a virgin when you married Mama? Now I look, and I'm about like six cars in front of me, and I'm like, man, I got 30 seconds to answer this girl's life thought-provoking question, right? So I'm like, and, I've, and this is why she felt the freedom to ask. Is that I tell my kids, I wasn't raised in an environment where there was transparency and honesty. I, didn't, I wasn't really raised in an environment where you integrated your faith with the context of the hood that you was raised in, right? All that stuff was separate. And I'm like, that ain't how you dichotomize life. Jesus is Lord over every area of my life. And if I live in the hood, guess what? He over my life in the hood, in the trap, or in the burbs, or in the country. And so I said, okay, Miha, which means daughter. I'm like, Miha, yeah. I said, because I told you you could ever ask me any question you ever want, and I told you I'll give you an honest answer, and I'll keep it a buck with you every time. I said, here's the deal. 
daddy was not a virgin when I married mama. She looked at me like, and just broke, and tears welled up in her eyes. Now, mind you, this is all within like 25 seconds, y'all. I'm not exaggerating. And I said, but listen, I said, your mommy knew. I was honest with her. Your mom was a virgin. I was not. I said, I confessed my sin to God when I lost my virginity before I even knew Jesus. I said, I confessed to your mom and kept it 100 with her so she knows everything about my sexual past, and she forgave me. And I said, but listen, I don't feel guilt and I don't feel shame. It took me a long time to step back from those feelings because I know I'm forgiven. But what I'm dealing with right now is a consequence for my sin that I didn't think about 20-something years ago. That there, there will come a day when I have to look my daughter in her eye when she asks me, were you a virgin when you got married to mama? And now you have been given the knowledge that daddy was not and I had sexual experiences before I was a Christian, sexual experiences after I was a Christian, and sexual experiences that I brought into the bed with your mom. And I said, those are consequences. That's not God's judgment. That's consequences that I got to deal with. And I said, but here's the great thing with five seconds left. I said, girl, that ain't got to be your story. Your story can be the opposite. Then when your little daughter roll up on you talking about, were you a virgin when you married daddy? I sure was. You keep them knees together and get to school. <laughs> I'm just saying. Because I'm like, you can't live my life. I got to live my life, and I got to deal with them consequences. So learn from my mistakes, right? That's exactly what David is saying. This is why he put his sin on blast. Confess, learn, and deal with the consequences. Because here's what God does. Remember, the second thing is he's going to confront our guilt with the gospel. David realized his sin made him guilty. He said, have mercy. He's pleading to God, have compassion on me because I know I'm guilty. And then he says this phrase, oh God, have mercy, oh God. Here's what's amazing. The word that David uses for God is Elohim. It's a very generic term like the term God. In the Psalms leading up to this, David would always call God Yahweh, which is the covenant-keeping name of God. Or he would at least call him Adonai, which in Hebrew means my Lord. There's an intimate connection, right? Here, David uses no language of intimacy. He just says, have compassion on me, God, in a general, generic way. I think it's because David is dealing with guilt and shame, and he feels that God doesn't love him as much anymore, right? Like, I know exactly how David feels. Because anytime I sin, I feel like, yo, God has kicked me out the fam. I got to jump through all these hoops in order to get back in good grace with God. No, the gospel says the complete opposite. The gospel says you don't deserve grace. By definition, grace is being given something that you could never work for or earn. It's a gift that is free. Mercy is the withholding of what you should get, which is the wrath of God. So God couples us with mercy by withholding his wrath, and he gives us grace, which means forgiveness liberally. There's no tension and brokenness in our relationship because you are in Christ. That's what the gospel tells us. We have the fullness of the story of God. David didn't, but then David even said, according to your steadfast love, which says, I know you're a covenant-keeping God. I'm a covenant breaker. But because you keep your covenants and you promise to have steadfast love to those who follow you, I am asking you, give me your steadfast love because I don't deserve it. David is begging for grace, and God gives it to him because that's what the gospel tells us. 
David realized that his sin left him indebted. He says, blot out my transgressions, which means to wipe the slate clean. I remember when I was 15 years old, man, I had a homie I used to run the streets with. And I went to his crib one day when his mama was at work. And his mama had like this, um, she had like this couch that was immaculate white. And she had this plastic covering over that couch, right? So whenever you sat on the couch, you couldn't take the plastic up. So one day, I had some Kool-Aid to drink a choice in my hood. And it's like powder, 30 pounds of sugar, and a few drops of water, right? So it was more like syrup, right? So we're sitting there drinking our Kool-Aid and whatnot. It was just Kool-Aid. wasn't nothing else in there. I'm just being honest with y'all. And um, drinking the Kool-Aid, I got a little, I, got, I started feeling myself a little bit, right? And I'm like, hey, look, man, I'm going to take the covering off your mama's couch, and I'm going to sit down with my red Kool-Aid. Boom! And I'm like... Ah! And there was this stain on that couch with the red Kool-Aid. Immediately, that dye from Mr. Kool-Aid's powder, a choice, wove deeply into the fabric of that couch. And that stain did not come out. That was the last time I was ever in my homie's house in 1995. And I'm not lying. And I was told by my homie that, oh, his mama came home and she put an APB. She was like, you see that little boy Damon around here, you tell him, come see me. I never went to go see her. <laughs> because I knew I was a marked man. There was a contract out on my life because I ruined her couch. So what they did is they couldn't get the stain out. So what they did is they, <laughs> they got this, like, crochet blanket type thing and they threw it over it, right? The plastic was still there and the throw was on top of that and then these decorative pillows were put on that so it would hide the stain but it never removed the stain. Remember that word atonement that I talked about? See, God set up this sacrificial system for Israel that said once a year that there will be an atonement made for your sins. The word atonement means to cover, not remove. It just means to cover. So God said, I'm willing to cover your stained hearts with a throw, a crochet blanket and some decorative pillows in my eyesight. If you have the right sacrifice. But the sacrifice of Jesus, as we read in Hebrews, is better than all the Old Testament sacrifices because it was a one-time sacrifice that did not cover the stain of sin. If we're going to say the couch is our heart, when Jesus died and shed his blood and rose from the grave, God said, get rid of that couch and bring a new couch. A couch that has an eternal stain resistant that no stain will ever get into the fabric of this couch ever again, which is your heart, because it is protected by the holy righteousness of Jesus. So the sacrifice of Jesus removes our stain and prevents us from becoming stained ever again. But the tension is, but we still sin. Yes, all the more reason why we confess. Because Jesus made the payment for our sins on the cross. And that is the continual payoff for the reality of our brokenness. That's why the gospel gauges us. And when God says, wash, and when David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, he's saying there's a tension in our relationship because of the nail in my head. Remove the nail and you're going to take away my headache. Remove the nail and I won't get snagged on everything so much. Remove the nail because we know the blood of Jesus removed the nail. And when we sin, we're choosing to put a nail back in our head. And God keeps telling us, get the nail out. Don't put it back in. Stop beating yourself up. Ain't nobody up here beating you. Walk in humility and brokenness. 
by confessing your sin and receiving the forgiveness that is made available to you because of Jesus. And that leads me to the last point. When we do that, confession of sin, and God confronts our guilt with the gospel, that allows us to give compassion to the godless. David said, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you when you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Throughout all of Bathsheba's pregnancy, David knew what was up. And he wrestled with, man, it's an obvious nail in my head that I'm acting like I ain't even here and I'm hiding from everybody else. But Nathan told him, you're cold and you're unforgiving. In that story, you were ready to kill this dude. Well, you are that dude. See, when we have unconfessed sin in our life, it turns us to now look at other people because we don't want to deal with our own mess. And we get so hard, so rigid, so legalistic, so domineering, right, with other people. And most often what I've seen is a trend in human beings that are followers of Jesus is that we will point out the obvious sins in other people's life or even make up sins in their life that is the real stuff we are falling victim to and trapped in. So we're hypersensitive to that. Like I remember some of the early arguments me and my wife got into, I would just call her out and be like, girl, look, you tripping. I ain't doing that. Real talk, I think it's because you doing that and you just trying to put it out there. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, I was right. Now, I don't lord it over her like, hey, you remember that time I was right? Like, no, nah, I don't do that. That's why I'm still alive. <laughs> but I recognize as men in our human condition, we want to point the finger at everybody else. But we got three fingers pointing back at us the whole time. See, it's easy to call out the sins of everybody else. But God is saying, don't call out their sin. You call out your sin. Let me deal with you and I'll deal with them. That's the reality of what it means to then say I can have compassion on other people. Because if anybody, if anybody is the profile of compassion living, it is us. Because God should have smashed us where we stood from our very first sin. And he doesn't. He gives us grace and compassion. So who better than to give compassion to people when they wrong us, when they do us dirty? When they leave us out to dry, when they lie to us, when they break our hearts. It's one thing to say, I forgive you. But it's another thing to walk in forgiveness by not holding them to your own personal wrath. This is why we're told in Colossians, man, forgive others as God has forgiven you. Because, yeah, I've been done, I've been done wrong many times in my life. But you know what? It don't compare to how many times I done done God wrong today. And so I have to balance with that. Now, walking in forgiveness doesn't mean I'm a doormat for people to walk over me, right? So that's where you have to understand your value and your identity and your worth. You don't have to throw yourself into the arms of an abuser, right? So that's what I'm saying. we got to nuance this thing to the point that we understand there shouldn't have been a Me Too movement that went so viral or a Church Too movement if leadership in the church would have done with the sexual sin of the abusers that were hiding in the church. And there may be victims of that abuse here. And on behalf of Christ, I want to say I apologize for the way that your body, your soul, and your mind was not protected. There's real legitimate hurt. So when we say forgiveness, that doesn't mean, oh, let my abuser continue to abuse me. No. No. God is a God of justice. He's a God of grace. And grace and justice are never imbalanced. They're in perfect balance with God. And so many times, 
There's been so many believers. There's so many people that don't know the beauty and compassion of God because their stories of, of abuse runs deep. They weren't believed. They were told to be quiet. And that stuff breaks my heart because my wife is a sexual abuse survivor. And as we're even processing through things in her childhood, I'm like, wow, man, I, I had no idea. And that's where I even have to recognize the sensitivity. And, and, and this ain't even in my notes, but I want y'all to hear this, man. Is that's where I even have to walk in sexual, sexual sensitivity to my wife. Because even me being exposed to pornography at the age of six, man, it put an objectification of women into my mind at a young age when I was still forming. And that's where there's been times where I've even had to tell my wife, like, you know what? I've objectified you. I've objectified you. Like, there's been times where I've had to confess and repent, which means I turn from my practice. See, it's one thing to confess. It's another thing to repent. Repent means I walk away from what I was once doing. I confess and now I go the opposite direction. And repentance means I have a fear. I know I can fall into that again, so I want to put guardrails in my life. That I want people to know me, not the filtered version of me. You know, like you take 332,000 selfies and only one makes it on the gram, right? And that thing got 42 filters on it, right? So, like, we want to put our filtered self. But accountability says, nah, you got the password to my phone. Look at all 332 photos that didn't make the cut. Because we think accountability is, let me give you the filtered version of me that makes the cut. No, Christianity is a faith that says, I'm undone. I ain't perfect. I ain't all good. I've got scars. I've got addiction. I've got brokenness. I doubt myself. I'm very self-critical of myself. I deal with depression. I deal with suicidal thoughts. I deal with all these things. Yet, I hold that in this hand, but in this hand, I'm a child of God. I've been forgiven. I'm renewed by the Spirit every day. God loves me. He forgives me. I hold both of these intentions. That's the real Christian faith that says, this is my story, but Jesus is not done writing it. And so today as I close, God is asking, what's the nail in your head? Maybe two or three of them things up there. What is the nail or the nails, what are the obvious sins in your life that you are not taking out and laying down to God and asking him through Jesus Christ to forgive you of so that your pathway to healing can begin? What are those things? Let me pray as we go into a time. Father, allow the hearts of those in this place to be massaged by your wonderful, compassionate, loving hands. All of our hearts, including mine. Allow us to consider what are the obvious sins in our lives that go against your word. Our life rhythms, our life practices. What are the things that we are doing? And if we don't know because we have never been introduced to the beauty of your commands, then I pray that in dialogue today, you would allow people who know you, who follow Christ, who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, that know the word of God, would express through question and answer, is this sin or is it not? And may they go to your word, your objective, transcending, truthful word to say, God declares this righteous and he declares this 
unrighteous. And in the areas where it's not an issue of morality, but it's personal preference or choice, then help us to identify those areas and recognize the internal struggles that we may have with preferences. And if we don't guard those preferences, then they can become idols. And when they become idols, now we are worshiping our preferences and self-gratifications and pleasures, and that then is sin. So give us wisdom, give us discernment, Holy Spirit, and guide us in the truth of your word and in the community of the beloved that we are in Jesus. For it is in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Here we are. Thank you, DA. We're going to move into our time now of one thought. So maybe you're coming into this conference and that maybe the first time you're hearing a talk is weighty as something on the topic of sin, but also balancing that with reconciliation uh, and loving God. And so in this time of one thought, really go to him and reflect, man, have I, have I ever gone to God before with my sin? How have, have I ever gone to him um, before to receive mercy, uh, as Dia was talking about. And so in this time, we're not going to have time right now to write it down. We're going to have a 10-minute break. And so as you're on this 10-minute break, maybe be in reflection of what sin might I be holding on to, not wanting to bring before God. Uh, and so, yeah, have some time of reflection. Maybe during the break, talk to some friends that you're with if something's real pressing on your mind. But then we'll be back here uh, in 10 minutes for part two of DA in the morning, baby. So... Go ahead, take a little break now. We'll see you guys in 10 minutes. Check, check. Specific time to be back in here is 10.45. So I think that might be a little less than 10 minutes, but 10.45. 11.45. Get your hours right.
check, check. Hey, break is wrapping up. Start finding your seats if you have not already. Start working your way to your seats. All right, y'all, again, start finding your way to your seats if you've not already. We're trying to get this thing a-scooting. All right. For the sake of time, we'll get started as people are filtering in. So, uh, you guys been enjoying DA so far? Awesome. So, DA's message of reconciliating us with God, with ourselves, with others is so important. And, and obviously we know this, but the hope is that, as, as Christians, the hope is that this message would not just be proclaimed here in Indianapolis, but that this message would be taken across the world. Because the entire world needs, needs that message, needs to know about God's grace and his mercy and the bloody cross, the empty tomb, like what DA was saying last night. And so uh, there's a lot of different initiatives for that happening, but one that's really exciting that Campus Outreach has started is this thing called CO Lead. And uh, it's a really amazing opportunity where people are going across the world uh, proclaiming this message of God's grace and his mercy. And so we're going to hear from some folks about CO Lead, but first we have a video. So you can go ahead and roll that in the back whenever you're ready. I've been thinking about going overseas for a really long time. I was really unsure about what God wanted me to do. Okay, God, what have you called me to do for the next season of my life? This helped me learn myself in a deep way. The world is in great need. But when I finally decided to not walk in fear, walk in obedience to the Lord, I thought, okay, why am I not already going right now? Like, let's go tomorrow. I think going somewhere else opens your mind so much. In being here, my heart has changed and has grown for the lost more than it did in the States, and that's something that I was not expecting. Especially the foreign culture. 
really drives you to learn about yourself in ways that we don't experience as, as clearly in the U.S. I never thought about to lead, okay, what does the world actually look like that God so loved? And it opened my eyes to the fact that there are billions, literally billions of people around the world that don't know the Lord and don't really have a chance to unless someone goes um, and tells them about it. And it's the best news that we could share. I think in terms of advancing the mission, God has taught me about the importance of faithfulness. You just have to be faithful. A lot of days students aren't communicating back to us, but we just wake up and go in faith that God's going to do something with this day. God really taught me more and more what the beauty of the gospel looks like and what it means to hold it up for others to see and consider. We have seen God um, go beyond our own abilities to understand and learn how to speak another language and how to worship Him in another language. You can be a part of that. <laughs> like, that's so cool. Being outside of my comfort zone and trying to lead has definitely pushed me to um, think more for others and think well for them because of the cultural differences. I think it's something that the Lord really stretched me in and grew me in, uh, and I think it's going to pay dividends for the rest of my life. Working with teammates and team members who have different interests and passions and react differently has been a great experience and has really pushed the boundary of the box that I live in. It's been amazing being with people who are so different from me. Wonderful. And a crazy, crazy experience I never could have gotten anywhere else. In Habakkuk it says, look upon the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you would never believe if told. The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about the New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com.